This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season. This is kind of like terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do we know why they put a baby in the cake yet? You'd better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from whenever to whenever, from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We are joined with Nastasia, but she is using the ladies' room. Got Matt, though. Hello. How you doing? I'm feeling great. Yeah? Yeah? Anything anything good happened in the past? I was not here last week, so There was a there was a convergence of your at least internet presence and my real life. Uh I saw that paella cooker that you had put up on the gram and I was at a wedding at San Francisco in San Francisco this weekend and paella was the main dish and they had these enormous, you know, griddles that they did them on. And then I then I get on the Instagram and you're you're popping off about the paella. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe there's some sort of like uh, like along with the coronavirus, maybe there's some sort of like paella inducing bug that's going around. <laughs> you know what that's, I mean? Yeah. What a delicious thing to get bitten by. Probably should not joke about the coronavirus. Um, that's too late. That's we're on the record. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how was the paella at the event? Were you able to pick around the sausage bits? Uh, <laughs> there were two. There was a veggie one. Um, it was fine, although I was at the last table to be served, and I gotta be honest, it was a little, it was a little cold by the time I got to it. Yeah, you know, once and also like once rice, like once the paella starts getting too cold, it's gonna start kind of soliding up on you. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So then you're gonna want to make the balls and refry it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm thinking table one's paella was like. But table 12's paella was, yeah, it was, a, it was fine. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, my mom, like, it's, uh, I was kind of shocked because it's not, like, usually what she does. I mean, she has a tandoor because she has my tandoor, right? She has a big green egg because she has the big green egg I have. Yeah. But then she goes and buys this, like, 8 billion BTU paella cooker with this giant pan. And I was like, well done, ma. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's. What's nice is it's rather lightweight, but it's it's big. If you buy it, it's the Mabel brand, right? Okay. The one the one issue with it is that uh, the you need to really regulate the flame way down. It's like when it comes from the thing. I think the, I don't know whether the regulator my mom had was mismatched, and and she was because uh, there's you know there's two different. I don't know if you notice there are two different kinds of propane regulators depending on um, two different kinds of like barbecue style propane regulators, one that delivers it at like, you know, a quarter of a PSI or a half PSI, something like this, and one that delivers it at like eight PSI. And it was like the holes were made for like the quarter PSI and we ha- it felt like we had the, the like, you know, eight PSI or five yeah. PSI thing. Because when you jacked it, it's just the flames shot up off the ring and out. And it's more of a gentle flame than, let's say, like a wok burner flame. So yeah. it's not like a, it's more just like a, this like giant sheet of flame that you put the the big old pan on. But yeah, 
Yeah, you know you're cooking things efficiently when the flyer is just like fly flaring up around all sides to an extraordinary degree. Yeah, well, you're going to be just right. You know what I mean? Yeah. The thing is, is that, I mean, I always say this. I always say, you know, there's no such thing as having uh, too much power, but it's... The problem with too much power in, in gas appliances, anyway, it's, with electric, it's true. You really can. How are you going to have too much? You know what I mean? But with, um, with gas implements, the problem with very high-powered gas is that it, they often can't be throttled down low. Do you know what I mean? So, in fact, when I'm working on the V8, one of the things I'm going to have to look at is, is, is this too dang powerful? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Is it just too much power? Because... Um, I mean, I guess I could also just throttle it with different orifices and whatnot. That's the thing. You, it's hard, like, you, you can change, like, once you decide kind of the geometry and the flow, it's it's hard to get something that's meant to have a big old flame, have a tiny little flame, and have it not get blown out. You know what I mean? Because it's just not getting the same kind of flow of gas. If you want to have a small flame, you should design for a small flame, and then it's easy to keep it stable. But if it's designed to do you know, 40,000 BTUs, then it's hard to get it to do, you know, five. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do, by the way, there was a caller who called in, like, right before we even got started. I yeah? I don't know if you want to. Was it, was, who, I know Alex Talbot's from. It was not, it was not Alex Ta- I right. don't think it was Alex Talbot. All right, well, Alex is going to call in in a minute. Let's, I'll take the caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave, it's uh, Dave from California. How are you doing? All right, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, I actually uh, wrote into you about the uh, a few weeks ago about the Sears on the power intensity. Right. Um, a, kind of a follow up to that, uh, maybe a tangent is uh, deep frying. What What do you think is kind of the bare minimum of uh, power for doing good deep frying? Um, obviously, uh, given a a certain volume of oil, I guess. Right. Well, um, well, it's okay. I mean, look, are you talking an electric fryer or a gas fryer? Uh, I've got to go electric, uh, in my case, um, indoor, I know they're indoor. Yes. Yeah. So if you're, if you're not going to permanently, like if you're not going to permanently put it into the wall or, you know, since you're in California, if you're not going to have a 220 plug, you're completely limited to about 1,500 watts. Like, that's it. Like, that's the maximum you're going to get. The, the most I can find, and, yeah, it's for uh, 240, is uh, 3,000 watts. Ah, that's now that's a much thousand. nicer number. Yeah, like, the issue with, um, the issue with fryers, I've, and I haven't researched them in a long time, is uh, I'm assuming this is a drop-in electric element. Uh, like, how much of a cold zone does it have underneath? It's not just the power, right? So it's the, the, it's the power versus the the oil amount you have. So, you know, a, a 40 pound, it's been a while, but a 40 pound fryer, i.e. it holds 40 pounds of oil, is a 40 to 50 pound fryer. It's somewhere in the range of like, I think 60 to 80,000 BTUs, somewhere in that range, I think. It's been a while since I've uh, looked at the numbers and they're not at the top of my head. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of, a, that's in BTUs though. I don't know how many watt, I'd have to do a watt conversion. I don't have the conversions in my head. I have to go on an Excel spreadsheet and do it. But, um, you know, I, I would just do a test. If, you're, if your unit heats up in five to seven minutes, I'd say you probably have adequate power. 
right? But the, 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 there's, it's not just the power, right? The problem with um, you want to buy an, a, a fryer that has the biggest possible elements, right? So you want – so I could have something that's 3,000 watts and – I mean you would never build this – and a quarter of an inch, you know, stick, just a little small stick, right? And the problem is, is if I'm putting out that much wattage into a very small area – uh, I don't have that much area to conduct the heat to the oil, and it's going to radically overheat the oil in that range. This is why tube fryers are so good because the gas that's in them is a, it has a very large surface area on which to heat the oil, so it's not radically overheated in any one place. And good electric fryers mimic this by having instead by having either to, like larger tubular elements or sometimes ribbon elements in them, so that you have a larger heating surface area, metallic heating surface area, than you would if you used, let's say, thinner coils that you might find in a toaster, let's say. It's something that looks like more of a toaster element. Um, so I, not only raw power, I would look at kind of what the surface area of the heating element is, and then whether they've developed any like sort of trough underneath it to develop a relatively colder zone so that you, you know, particles that are in it don't burn onto the bottom. So the worst are under-fired fryers because it, 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 it actively scorches the stuff that's on the bottom of the pan. And this is why, this is yep. why stovetop frying yep. is so problematic. Yep. Yep. I know. I've been stovetop frying for forever. Yeah. Uh, so th there aren't a lot of options, obviously, uh, in the residential uh, units. Um, the, there is a Gaginau that's the 3,000-watt fella, and it does ha have a cold zone. Uh, the heating element flips up and all that. Um, and it's uh, 3.7 quarts, so just shy of a gallon. Of oil? Or that's the volume of the unit. It holds that uh, much oil. That's I not bad. That's not terrible. The thing just says capacity, so I, I, I don't know how to read into that. I mean, that's not terrible. So, like, uh, you know, imagine. I mean, I, I would just look at the manual and see how much oil they say to add. Whether because I, I don't know how they rate capacity. You know what I'm saying? But like, if you imagine taking a whole gallon of oil and pouring it into a pot, you would rarely do that at home. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot of oil for home use. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not above doing that. No, more oil, the better. Always. The more oil that your fryer takes, the better off you are. Like, uh, like yeah, as long as there's adequate power, more oil equals better, equals there's less oil in your food. The more oil you use and the better your, your heater is and the better maintained the oil is, the less stuff you're going to get in, in your food. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I, so there, there, there is a drain. So you can uh, strain your uh, oil and reuse it. And I, uh, even with my stovetop frying right now, I mean, I'm, I'm no stranger to uh, filtering my oil. That's, that's fine. Yeah, and once you get a real fryer, just like you're going to be like, did I really sit here and try to adjust the freaking temperature of this pot and worry about boil over and blah, 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 blah all this time? That's what you're going to say to yourself. Get a good yeah, vent. It, it, put, it near the, put it near the window. Yeah, but like I like I said, the the residential units. I don't want. I don't. I'm not Dave Arnold. I'm not going to go hack something or get a commercial unit and put it in. I, I really want to stick with a res, residential electric. So that that limits me. Yeah. Well, I mean, but if you think Gaginau makes good think, stuff, I haven't tested it, so I can't recommend it. But Gaginau in general makes good, pricey, but good well, stuff. If, well, I, I mean, I mean, you you sort of answered me. I mean, three, if you think three thousand watts for a gallon of oil is pretty good, then 
That's Hopefully probably sufficient. I have to do some calculate. Tweet at me, and I'll, I'll try to when I'm offline and can look up the calculations. I'll try to do the calculations. Okay. All right. Cool. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks. All right. Hey, Stas. Hey. How's you doing? Good. How are you? I brought you a present from Belgium. This is I can never uh, Tirentin Verlant mustard. Thank you. This is this is the mustard that is unavailable anywhere. So, so John Nihul, the, our, the Belgian, our Belgian friend at the Museum of Food and Drink in the curatorial department there, uh, he recommended a bunch of places to go, but literally he was like, you have to go. He said it's unsurpassable, not unsurpassed, Nastasia, unsurpassable, in other words, in, not able to surpass it, mustard. You have to keep it refrigerated. They mm -hmm. make it in the basement, mm -hmm. right? So you go into this shop, and by the way, we weren't even gonna go to Ghent. Like, we weren't even gonna, we're like, what's a Ghent? What's Ghent? Matt, you know anything about Ghent? Absolutely not. What's Ghent, right? We're like, you gotta get, move that paper a little bit away from the microphone. We're like, yo, Ghent. And the, the only reason we went to Ghent was to get the mustard. It was the very first place we went once we arrived in Ghent. And I was not surprised, uh, uh, I was not, what's it called, uh, disappointed. I bought 100 euros worth of mustard, filled my entire backpack with it. It's all I brought back was mustard and the kind of the clothes on my back. Through everything away. It's a spicy mustard. It's nice, right? So this lady, they've been making it since the 1700s, and the what happens is they they grind it in the basement, and they won't tell you anything about it, like nothing. I was like, hey, uh, where do you make it in the basement? You can't visit the basement. I'm like, well, I haven't asked yet, but okay, okay, lady. And then, I guess, I mean, they never met me, but if you had been there, you'd have been like, lady, you're right. He was going to ask to yeah. visit the freaking mustard downstairs. And then I'm like, I asked her about the grinder, and she goes, my dad built it, I don't talk about it. That was it. She, she did give me a little bit. She said, because I asked her, I was like, do you have like a stone grinder down there similar to like, in, like a, a wet grinder, like a, from India for like Idli and, 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 what, and dosa batter? Because, you know, we know people who make mustard by, by using those. Like, it's a good technique to make mustard at home. And she's like, I don't talk about it, and I won't talk about it with you. There is stone involved. That's all she said. And then she has this giant, like, wooden, this giant, like, this, like head, human head-sized wooden label. That gets in your nose, right, Stas? Yeah, it's good. It's really good. So she, she has this giant wooden, like, head-sized ladle, and then they have all these empty jars they sell other stuff too, like, but what this is their one thing. They've just whole shelves of empty jars, and then you take the scoop and you go and you scoop it into the jar of your of your choice. And then she warns you to refrigerate it because it's gonna lose its spiciness, and she warns you not to keep metal utensils in it because it's gonna cause it to, to separate. Uh-huh. That, that's it. That's really good. Thank they you. don't ship it, but here's what there's a there is a there's a bootleg version where one of the words is the same. I can't remember whether it's uh, Tarentian or Verlant, but it's like Fernando and then the other word. And that one they have in the, in the airport. So you're like, oh, I missed it. I could buy it now. Bootleg! Bootleg! Not real! Uh, what else? So before I go into waffle craziness. Do you have a caller? Is that what you're going to say, Matt? Do we? Uh, well, I was going to say, so Alex is, has called in. I also All right. have a 20-second reverse ad to play. We should just do it now. Wait, the ad or the Alex? The ad, and then and then Alex. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. So that's their appetizing music. <laughs> that's one. That's their come eat with us. 
music. It sounds I, yeah. like when we eat. Monster, monster, monster trucks. It's like, <laughs> it's like off the regular show or something or, or, you know, wow. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing says come have an enjoy. Can you play that again? Just no. a little bit, a little bit of the music. <laughs> Just give me a little bit of the music. Whoop. My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's. Come down for an enjoyable meal. That is what it's like here. <laughs> I think it's a reasonably accurate representation of what it's like here. Yeah, yeah that's funny. It's an assault on the senses. Oh, yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, wait, we got Alex or no? Uh, I, I am here. Do. Can you hear me? I can. How you doing? This is Alex Talbot Good. from uh, Ideas and Food, by the way, people. Friend of the show. Been on a couple of times. Um, so I had a question that it just wasn't really my place to answer. So I'll read you the question. Uh, this is from Daniel. Uh, Char- I don't know whether it's, it's Char- Chargel or Chargel, Nastasia. What do you think? Chargel. Uh, this is uh, regarding gluten-free baking. All right. Are you ready? Now you sure. want to plug your you want to plug your book so that your your gluten free book so that they can know where they can go for more information. Gluten free flour power all right. is the book uh, where all books are sold. Easiest is the uh, the Overlord Amazon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know what? I have to say, Nastasi and I are going to go visit the Amazon uh, pretty soon. Are it's- we? You don't want to commit. I don't want to commit because I don't want to go. Okay, you were going to force me to do go. You do not have to go. We've decided 2020, you don't want to do something, not going to do it. Who's decided that? Rebecca, I, that since when? Rebecca and I. That, but that's a stupid thing to Why? say. Because I tell this to my kids all the time. Like 99.9% of the stuff I have to do in life is stuff I don't want to do. I know, you do all of that, avoid that, but then you're not going to do anything. I'm never going to shave again. Like, I'm going to have, like, a Leatherman outfit. You, you know who did what he wanted? The Leatherman. And he wore, like, an 80-pound suit of leather. I just do that. Nah. You already sort of inhabit a Leatherman-like cave uh, from, you know, noon to one on Tuesdays. That's true. That's true. All right. Sorry, Alex. Uh, That's all right. All right. We, we, we'll also represent my, uh, my donut shop, right? Curiosity Donut. Oh, yeah. How's it going? It's good. We have, uh, we have three, three locations now. Okay, so wait, so you had you had a location and then you switched into a different place. I don't know. What, tell people the I've heard I haven't been, but I hear good things. Why don't you tell people about where the locations are? So the donut shop it started off in the Stockton Farmers Market four and a half years ago. That's in Stockton, New Jersey. We not Stockton, California, after, people. Not Stockton, California. No, not in Cali. No, not yet. Uh, so then we actually opened up inside the Whole Foods Market in Springhouse, Pennsylvania. So that's. Uh, our, our was our, our first shop, our, our second shop, I guess. And then we're in Whole Foods in Princeton, New Jersey, as well, on Saturdays and Sundays. I've never been and to Princeton. Then, Here it's nice. Princeton's nice. And then, uh, you know who came visiting me there? It was Nathan. Really? Mirvold? Yeah. He, he, pop, he, he popped in with uh, the Modernist Pizza team. Oh, yeah? Uh, and crushed, just crushing donuts, which was great to see. It was awesome. Magoya yeah. and the crew, they were, they were, they were uh, taking Magoya donut crew. But, but, but Johnny, Johnny was there. Nice, uh, nice. Uh, and then we opened up a, a third shop in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Where's that? And get Tyson's Corner, Virginia is right outside DC. Okay, okay. Uh, and like do you right, do right across the river? Do you do a gluten-free donut or no? We don't. We uh, at Stockton we did for a little while, but there, there's so much flour and other ability for cross-contamination. Oh, so you're uh, like it's it, like it's like you can't control it enough to make yourself feel comfortable doing it. It's not that you can't correct. make the donut; you just don't feel comfortable in your controls. Correct, because like in, in gluten-free flour power, we got a, we have a great gluten-free donut, phenomenal. But 
nice. uh, in the space that we have. It's not, it's not, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't do it well. All right. Give, give me a couple seconds to explain this. Cause you know, you guys are doing the, you guys are doing the, the fancy donuts. My brother-in-law Wiley doing the fancy donut. There's what is with the donut explosion in the past eight years? What is, what is it? Cause like, you know, 15, 15, 16 years ago, you had a couple of kind of non, non, just, I don't want to say non-commercial. What do you like? Kind of craft donut, whatever you want to call it. Shops, yeah. right? We're called craft donuts. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So, like, uh, you know, you had in New York, you know, you had Donut Plant, who used to be exclusively a yeast house. Now they're a mixed cake and yeast house, um, and you know, a couple others. And then over the past eight years, it's like or five, even really, maybe even three, right? It's been like boom. What is it? Why? Ah, well, uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I think I think a couple of things. One is, uh, I think as as cooks, right? When we, we we like slightly simpler things, or the the idea of simpler things, and so there's the nostalgia side of it. Uh, and then as chefs, we become uh, we find a need to make things more complicated, or or really, I find a way to make things more complicated. I mean, our our donut shop, we make, we make eleven different styles of dough. Oh yeah. So. So not just donuts, but doughs. We have eleven different styles of dough. What is like one of them? Like, uh, do you, do you have a problem doing a, a high fat enriched yeast like a brioche style? Do they bleed out too much, or do you like what? They, like, they, they don't. I mean, so we, we, that's our, our original donut base is the, our vanilla yeasted. That was it's, it's modeled after the recipe from uh, Maximum Flavor, which was a, a no need double enriched butter brioche style donut. And it doesn't leak out too much. It doesn't get all crazy but, on you. No, but the the process is insane. I mean, it's 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 a again we we doubled the butter in the in the donut, and, and we came across that idea. Francisco was was playing around with our no need brioche recipe from our first book, and he doubled the butter in it and and served it to us at at a uh, an event. And we're like, this is insane. And he's like, yeah, it's called King's Brioche. Double the butter. So well, we we tried that, uh-huh. and then I modified it a little bit more to, to turn it into a donut. Well, uh, I- we put that in. I said, I wonder then, whether you could double the butter in the Liege waffle recipe. Sure. I don't know. Why not? I don't know. I, I mean, I, more, often than, more often than not, I find most doughs can take, take way more fat than, than that's actually in it. So, like, we have, so we have, the, the, we have a chocolate, chocolate yeasted, vanilla yeasted. We have our angel donut, which is modeled after an angel biscuit. Again, angel biscuit leavened with baking powder, baking soda, and yeast. What's an angel biscuit? So, it, it, angel biscuit's a old school Southern biscuit and they, they would leaven it with, with all three things. So it'd be yeast leavened and also have chemical leaveners in it. Huh. And it was supposed to be a so, so light and fluffy, but you get, you get the, the fermentation from the yeast and then you get the extra lightening from the baking powder and baking soda. Huh. Were they using a soured milk though? Did you need the soda just for pH correction? Uh, I, I think it was just, everyone, they, were, they were just throwing everything in there, but I don't know the specific origin of all three. Cause my standard pancake batter is and even my chicken stuff is a soda is a soda powder mix but the soda is there for some primary shabam but also really just to to shift the acid down you know what i mean okay otherwise otherwise it doesn't brown if you're using people if you use buttermilk or any sort of acidic ingredient in your baked goods and you don't adjust the ph somehow you're going to have sallow a sallow looking crust or or it could be the 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 ingenious all you know, like fluff, fluffy white pancakes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's not me. It's not me. But I understand what you're saying. All right, let me get to this question. Uh, yep. I have a question about making gluten-free flour mix for bread. 
Now, here's the problem. Uh, you know, this is the, here, here comes the problem. Uh, ideally, we'd like to create a mix that worked well in challah and sandwich bread. Although I like, yeah. I like sandwich, I like challah for a sandwich. I don't see why, you know, why wouldn't you? What the hell are you talking about? I mean, they're, they're slightly different, though. I mean, the, the hollow is just a slightly richer. Sandwich is going to be a lighter guy. Yeah, but I'm saying, why can't you use, like, in other words, except for the shape of a, the traditional shape of a challah, that dough works, yes, it's richer, but it works fine as yeah. a sandwich bread. Yeah. It's not your, it's, cl- like- it's not a Pullman, but whatever, anyway. No. Um, our cooking issue is that one of our children can't eat rice or oats, uh, and those are very common ingredients in gluten-free flour. Is there an ingredient that would be? So the thing is, there's this 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 question. I think you're going to take issue with because there's never an ingredient with gluten-free flours. There's always multiples. But is sure. there an ingredient that would be a good sub for rice flour in most recipes? What structural features does rice flour contribute to a bread recipe? Rice flour doesn't do anything. Rice flour is a filler. Right. So what would you fill it with? It's new, as neutral as rice. I mean, anything works. I mean, why not use quinoa flour or um, Doesn't that have a taste, though? Quinoa flour has a taste. Yeah, I mean they, they all have some sort of taste. Um, I mean, I guess rice is the most flour. neutral of them, right? I mean, that's the whole deal. Right. R- r- rice is a, is a sort of a blank slate. Yeah, I mean, but but they're, 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 it's not adding structure very or not much. Right, but what would you what, like? What, what's the most like if you if you could never use rice flour again as the as the filler, right? What would you use that is lowest in, in flavor transfer, lowest in weirdness? I, mean, I, don't want, I don't want it to get beanie on me. I don't want it to get all, you know, like. I mean, that, that's, that, that's why you're using all the different varieties, right? I mean, you just, you're going to keep, you're going to keep adding a mix of the, mix of the darn thing. So you have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, let me go to my book because we have, we have three flower blends which I don't have completely memorized anymore. All right. Well, you look at that. Uh, sorghum. Sorghum will work. Sorghum, though, absorbs a lot of liquid, and it's dark in color. Do they make a lighter sorghum flour? Not that I know of. Right? It's like, well, in other words, doesn't, isn't it more moisture-absorbing than rice or no? Or about the same? I haven't, see, I have, I haven't seen it. But I mean, I've done sorghum did, pancakes, right? And I've subbed, uh, I've subbed up to half of the of the flour base right i'm talking not gluten-free but half the regular flour base with sorghum and then yeah. in the sorghum anyway that i was using a had some residual sugar which is i think where the where the extra moisture holding crap probably comes from i don't know you know what i mean and it was just kind of yeah. it, it had a definite like color cast and then it was like a little bit indensified and a little bit moist you know what i'm saying yeah i mean so let's think about. It. We, I mean, you've, you've got white rice. What about corn flour? That is that illegal? No, corn flour sounds like a good. Uh, that sounds like a good. Is there really any difference between corn starch and corn flour? Is it just milled differently? Well, one one is the whole the whole thing, and the other one's just the starch. So corn flour is just a finely grilled, finely milled corn meal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. All right. I like that. Everyone likes corn. Some people won't admit it. They'll say it's the devil. But is anyone like I hate corn? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you've got, you're, you're going to have allergies there, but yeah, no, we use, we use tapioca starch, sorghum, arrowroot. Um, arrowroot's expensive, but nice. Now, here's the thing. It's like, if they mentioned that they can't have rice or oats, I'm pretty sure they would have mentioned they can't have corn. I would hope, but 
I mean, otherwise, it becomes a little bit, you know. I mean, the, the, we can mill anything these days. I mean, you see coconut flour, but that's just a filler too. Yeah, that's and not that, bad. That, Stuff's not bad though. But it, but it doesn't. But it doesn't absorb any liquid. Almond flour is a good filler too. But again, it, I mean, it, and it, it absorbs no liquid. Right. It's also expensive. Correct. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. Like, uh, you know, for cookies and stuff, almond works great, especially if you're going to use egg whites and whatnot. I mean, hell, whole cookie recipes are basically sugar, almond flour, and egg whites. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but it's like, yeah, it's not going to help you much when you actually need structure in a bread, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's the issue. Uh, but again, you, you, you know, then you're, then you're looking at, you know, cornstarch and tapioca starch to give you your, your, your elasticity and, you know, your gelling. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking donuts and flour with us, Alex. Come, uh, come to New York sometime and see us. Bring some donuts. We'll talk. Absolutely. You should uh, make a field trip when you uh, go see uh, the old Amazon. They're, they're near Tyson's Corner, my friend. No, we're going to Amazon in Seattle. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, big Amazon. You're going to, like, you're going to, you're going, you're going to the, uh, the Mecca. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You, 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 know, you, know, you do Starbucks, Amazon, and... and and Microsoft and just, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing in Amazon, I'm hoping that, I don't know because I've never been, but I'm hoping that the, that the front door is shaped like a giant mouth and that they make you leave through a door on the other side that's shaped like a butt. So it's like Amazon just chews you up <laughs> and poops you out. You know what I mean? Better yet, they turn you into a liquid and then, and then like shoot you through a small pipe. You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm hoping happens when I go there. But, you know, you know what I mean? I actually think you leave in a, you leave in a box. It's, they ship you home. Yeah. <laughs> With a little smile thing and the tape over the top. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, yep. that, that's, that's what's going to happen. I hope I get the new drone delivery. At least that way I'll be in an unpressurized, I mean, a, in a, you know, a space with enough oxygen. Anyway. All right. Talk well, to you soon, brother. Well, pleasure. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Sergio writes in regarding mayonnaise. Hello, Dave and Nastasia. Ser- I think it's Serge or Serge. 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 From Melbourne, Australia. Nastasia, you should give Australia a go. We have fun people, great food and produce, and mostly good weather, but not in Melbourne. What do you think? I don't like your accents, so... <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Okay. So I'm surrounded by Australia haters here. I, got... I was going to not mention it. Well, because you already got you already, already got dinged. You're already, already persona yeah. non grata in Australia. Yeah, there, but Matt. this guy Serge is apparently not you know aware. So can we not talk about that? Serge did not mention the excellent quality of kangaroo hide for whips. World's best. Anyway, um, <laughs> my question is regarding the uh, mayonnaise seared steak uh, seared steak technique that keeps coming up in my conversations with a friend. Was wondering if there's an actual benefit in it, and uh, what is it that makes it better? What's the science behind it all? My friend swears. It's side by side. The mayo steaks cook faster. I don't know if it's faster. Anyway, I don't believe it. Any idea of what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So look at this. First of all, what do you, what is mayo? Mayo is, I mean, it's a little bit acid, but it's oil, water, and an emulsion, right? Then there's egg yolk, which is like proteins and phospholipids and other stuff. And the phospholipids are emulsifiers. I'm going to get back to this in a second. And some sugar, typically, in mayonnaise, right? So, or sugars, but typically they also just add some sugar to it, right? So, first of all, 
it, mayonnaise is thicker than oil. So when you're wiping mayonnaise onto your steak, you are giving a better kind of a more a gel-like heat transfer mechanism between your pan and the steak. So right there, you're winning over just brushing it with oil, right? Secondly, the phospholipids, first of all, the water is going to conduct heat much faster. So the oil is going to get up to, I mean, that stuff has to boil off, obviously, for you to get up to the high, you know, searing temperatures, but it's going to accelerate getting in there because it's going to transfer the heat faster, like going through. That's it, right? The, also, the, the egg yolk is going to cause the oil, the phospholipids in the egg yolk, is going to cause the oil to adhere better because it's got, it's, you know, got, it's amphiphilic, as they say, adhere better to the steak, and you're going to get a better heat transfer there as well because you're not, not just going to have an oil-water interface. You're going to have a, uh, you know, one that has some sort of, a, 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 you know, surface-active properties, which is why used oil in general is better than brand-new oil, right? Because it's, it's not just pure oil. It's got some fatty acids in it. So this has phospholipids. That's a win. Also, the sugar is going to combine with the proteins and create its own sort of Maillard stuff and going to crust up on the outside of the steak. So I'm saying all three of those things are going to be a win. Right? All right. Uh, Kieran, let's see. I'll get to Kieran in a second. Uh, Christian wrote in regarding gin soda. I currently live on a dry college campus, and, and I'm also still only 20 years old, so I cannot buy some of the ingredients I would like to make mocktails or cocktails if you're only 20. You can buy any ingredient you want. Don't use the word mocktail, by the way, Christian. Just call them non-alcoholic. Don't mock people. Just drink. Anyway, uh, I, I don't like the word mocktail. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it. It's going to take too long. Uh... 20 years old, so I cannot buy some of the ingredients I would like. I just heard something about a gin simple syrup made by infusing gin botanicals, and I was wondering if you had heard of this and would know how to make it and use something like this. I'd be curious to hear how you might make a usable replacement for gin. Thanks, Christian. So I wouldn't make a syrup. I mean, you could make a syrup, but uh, the way we used to do it is we made a, a tea. And the reason is, is then you can sweeten it separately depending on what you're going to use it for. So you make a rather concentrated tea, and then you can add water and or uh, sugar to and or acids to your taste. So we used to do, um, we used to make uh, a lemon syrup. So we did basically quinine to make it like a gin and tonic. You don't, you can ignore the quinine, but we, you made a quinine solution at zero point, we, well, I hesitate to give the actual things. So we did a juniper tincture, which is just juniper berries, salt, orris root tincture, uh, lemon peel, uh, I think we did orange peel, a little bit of fenugreek, right? Uh, and then we made teas out of them and then combined them together. And then we added, uh, clarif we added like clarified either lemon depending or lime, uh, to it like cordial to sweeten it. And then that becomes kind of like a, like a gin and tonic. But, you know, we didn't use a million of the different botanicals. We basically just did, uh, juniper. We did quinine for bitterness or orris. Uh, and then citrus peels. You could go kind of more in depth, but just make solutions. Like for instance, um, you could do, anyway, I, I could try to post the recipe later because this is in, I forgot that I left it in kind of our workplace numbers, which don't make sense, but that's, that's the basis of it. Um, okay, uh, let's see, I did the gluten-free. 
Let me see. Zach C wrote in about plums and pasta. For the past few years, I've been doing a very, uh, I've been doing a yearly plum harvest with some friends. We ferment it into wine and then distill it into brandy. I know that stone fruit tend to contain uh, stone fruit, you know, uh, fermented stone fruit. I think you mean contains more methanol than other fruits, but I don't really know how much. Do you know of any labs where I can get this accurately tested? Uh, well, I put a call into uh, Arielle Johnson, our science. Uh, she's not just Good Eats science person. She's also our kind of go-to science person. Mm -hmm. And I asked her uh, what she thought, because I called. There's an interesting thing, by the way, for any of you food people interested. Cornell has something called the Cornell Food Venture Center, and they'll do lab analysis of pH water activity, bricks, process, nutritional analysis and stuff for very reasonable fees. I called them this morning, but they don't do... Um, they don't do, um, what's the word? They don't do alcohol stuff. So I asked Arielle who she thought we, she should use, and she said, uh, at UC Davis, we'd sometimes use ETS, and that's etslabs.com for routine things we weren't set up for. So give ETS Labs a call, and they could probably test your distillate for methanol. Now, there's an old tried-and-true test for methanol versus ethanol, and that is you light it on fire. Now, it's got to be... Like, for instance, if it burns yellow, it's got methanol in it, right? Methanol burns yellow, and ethanol burns blue clear. Now, this doesn't work on things with sugar because sugar doesn't burn blue. Uh, so this is only in unsugared spirits you can run this test. But if it burns yellow, there's clearly uh, enough methanol for it to be dangerous. If it burns blue, you have a better shot. But uh, as Ariel said when I asked her about the efficacy of this test... Yellow burning will definitely tell you that it's unsafe, this is her speaking, but I'm not sure what the lower limit is. Like, there could be amount of methanol where the flame test is ambiguous, but the methanol is still harmful. So uh, take that for uh, whatever it is. Then you asked me, you said, um, second question, I've got a, a, the, what are those called, those, those, those bigly makers, the torch, the torch, you know what I mean, those rotary pasta makers, the presses, the pasta press? Like a torsi it says here torsio, but isn't it like torsino or something like that? Anyway, the rotary pasta thing, the way that you press, it looks like a big screw press. It's like a, it's like a, like a, a King Kong kind of a, of a cookie press. You know what I'm saying? With a screw in it, with a die on the end. Anyway, I've always wanted one, but I've never bought one. Thank God, because if I have a second, I'll talk about the thing that I did buy. Oh my God. Uh, we actually have two minutes. Hand cranked manual brass extruder. It's very cool looking, but it's a pain in the behind to use for any real quantity. Uh, I really want an Arco, uh, an Arco Bolano who doesn't. Uh, AEX5 home mixer, you know, you know, Alex Talbot has one, the one who just spoke to on the phone. But $1,900 is a lot of money. I recently saw a $200 Phillips pasta extruder. Is, uh, is, that, is that cheap thing complete garbage? Yes. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Okay, great. Moving on. Uh, so they don't no. work. They, wait, they don't work. Uh, and go get, uh, go, like, use Johnny Hunter's technique and see if you can like repurpose a small but heavy duty meat grinder. There are meat grinders and Johnny Hunter, you know, you could text him on uh, on the on the Twitter, he will respond or on the uh, what's it called uh, uh, Instagram and uh, he can tell you what dyes fit what uh, meat grinders and those things apparently do a bang up job because that's what he used. Devin the dude uh, I think said something similar that there's modding groups on. This is from the chat room. But also asked, it was unclear uh, from a couple of weeks ago, was my robot vacuum a total loss? No, I was able to resurrect the the robot vacuum from the the depths of the dog poop. Um, 
David writes in, I've recently started going through, et cetera, et cetera. Rotovaps seem to be very delicate pieces of machinery and often made from glass, always made from glass. As our facility does not allow glass to be in the kitchen, are there any other pieces of equipment that can be modified or have a similar effect? One of the ideas I had to use was to use a vacuum tumbler and somehow put some sort of collecting device between the tumble chamber and the vacuum pump. This would allow us to do a large amount at a time. Uh, unfortunately, I've never worked with a Rotovap before, so I'm hoping you could tell me if there's anything I'd be missing in this contraption. Uh, we have completely replaced, uh, this is, uh, David's Spotify playlist, so thanks for the content. So, uh, I mean, yes and no. The very first Rotovap I ever had was a vacuum tumbler that I modified. It's fairly easy to buy a rotary vacuum fitting off McMaster car that will allow you to take, uh, and, 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 you know, basically have a drum on a rotating thing with a vacuum coming out of it and then branch off of it. And I'm sure your vacuum tumbler, the one I had didn't have a takeoff on it. You just sucked a vacuum and then spun it. It didn't have a continuous vacuum, but if that one does, that's, that's good. But I highly, highly, it, it never worked great. And I really, re really recommend that you find someone with a Rotovap or somehow get a Rotovap and get experience on a regular Rotovap first so that you kind of get a feel for how the process works and then try to build something out of a vacuum tumbler. But yes, it is possible. The issue is you need to get good heat transfer into the vacuum tumbler, right? And you also need to get a uh, good chilling and you need a relatively large pipe for the vapors to go through. But assuming you can do all that, yes, should work. Um, we got to get off here pretty soon. Oh, man. I didn't get to John Denver about cocktails or anonymous thing on hops. I guess I can get to them next time. I also didn't get to Kieran's Okara question, which was going to be the classics in the field, which was going to be uh, William Shirtleff's uh, book on miso. Now, I could also talk about all of the food in Belgium. What should I do, Nastasia? <laughs> I mean, like, I have to I talk about while I have, like... Liege waffles versus Brussels waffles. Maybe I should talk about waffles next week because I have, yeah. I, I, I'm going to be doing some work. I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. I bought the actual waffle iron, like the real one. I had to go to Staten Island. I've got a guy now. But I bought, first of all, you might be thinking big deals of waffle. I want you to think about this while you're waiting for next week for me to talk about waffles. The difference between the top of the line waffle maker is the top of the line waffle maker weighs 90 pounds, 90 for a regular size waffle maker, 90 pounds, costs $4,000 new, right? And you got to put that head to head against a $30 Hamilton Beach. And what's the difference? So you can think about that and think about Liege waffles versus Brussels waffles and why you should never use the word Belgian waffle again, because that's like, that's not even, that does not, that's not even a thing. But we could talk about that next week. Should we save the classics in the field for next week, too? Yes. All right, we're going to do the Okara question, and maybe I'll do a double classics in the field next week if, if we can. Uh, we'll come back next week. More cooking issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.